passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, uh, years ago, my wife, Crystal, and I, we lived in the Chicago suburbs. And uh, we lived about 30 minutes away from where Crystal worked and where I went to seminary. And uh, 30, 30 minutes is, is quite a ways away, and, and yet um, it was a really easy drive every single uh, day. It was probably only five turns from our parking spot at our apartment to Crystal's parking spot at work. And, um, and yet one day, uh, the, the northern suburbs of Chicago experienced a a ton of rain in just a, a very short amount of time uh, to the point that the tollway that we would always take um, home as well as to work, uh, it was completely flooded and impassable at one spot where we needed to go. And so we were directed off of the tollway uh, into these suburbs that we had driven by for months, years really, but we'd never entered into them. And this is the, the era before smartphones, and so we didn't have maps in our pocket. And um, what, what had normally been this almost mindless activity of driving from one point to another suddenly became like the most harrowing adventure my wife and I had ever been on. Uh, even when we knew or guessed rightly what roads we should take to try to get home, half the time they were covered in water. And so what normally would take us about a half an hour would take us eventually like two hours to get home, all because of this flooding. We didn't know where we were going. We didn't know how to get where we wanted to go. And what may have started as this really fun experience of bonding between my wife and I definitely didn't end that way. Uh, I'm sure none of you can relate to that. And as I was considering what we're going to be looking at as a church over the next four weeks, I I just was reminded of that experience, that moment where it was crystal clear to me how important it is to know where you are going. And that's not just true when we're driving, although it, it certainly helps while we're driving, but it also is crucial for the church as a whole, that if we don't know where we're going, then we can wake up, decades have gone by, and all of a sudden, we have no idea where we are. We're not exactly where we thought we were going, and we are lost, frustrated, maybe even disillusioned, and certainly stressed. To that end, over the next four weeks, we want to take some time as a church just to, to discuss where God is calling us where God is leading us. And over the last six months, our elders have been uh, meeting and praying over a five-year vision for our church. Who do we want to be in, in five years? What do we want to be known for in our community over the next five years? And I've had a, a really great window into this experience. If you don't know, uh, we're a congregational church, and part of that way that congregationalism works itself out in our congregation is that tomorrow night we have our annual meeting and we affirm um, 
qualified elders to, to serve and to lead and direct our church. That's one of the things that we entrust to our elders as a congregation, that they are going to follow God's will and, and lead and guide us as a church. And over these last six months, I've had a really unique window into this process because, as I mentioned, they've been spending a lot of time in prayer, thinking, discussion on these topics. I attend elder board meetings, but I'm not an elder. And so I've gotten to see how much that they have invested into this process. And as I'm looking at this, presenting this vision to you this morning, as well as over the next few weeks, uh, it's a really really neat opportunity for me to not say, hey, look what I helped come up with, as much as it is to say, man, I can't wait to, to follow where God is leading our church leadership. And I really hope that you join in, that you join in and, and you feel that same, that same excitement about where God is, is leading our church. I mentioned that this vision, this discussion over the next four weeks is really, who do we want to be, be in our community? What do we want to be known for as a church? And in one sense, many things aren't going to change about Crosswinds. I, I, we're we're going to continue to live out our core values. We're going to continue to be committed to the proclamation of God's word. And yet in other ways, there are areas of growth and improvement that we can seek. And so if you look in your bulletin, you'll actually notice that you have two inserts today. You're getting two for the price of one this morning. You got your sermon notes, but then there's also a list of the seven points that our elders are hoping that we will focus on, not just here in Spencer, but also in Spirit Lake as a church over the course of the next five years as we seek to be more faithful in living out the calling that God has for us, the mission that God has for us in our community. And this morning what I want us to do is I want us to start at the very beginning. I want us to start with our mission statement that we are a people that are on mission from Jesus. We've been entrusted with a mission. And that is simply to be reaching people with Jesus. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15 this morning. We're going to look in the first 10 verses. It's going to take us a few moments to get there. We're going to do some, some groundwork before we get to that. But that's where we're going to end up this morning. As you uh, open up to God's word, would you join me in a moment of prayer? Let's pray. Father, it is, uh, it's such a privilege to get to join in worship with your people. The people that you have ransomed and that you have redeemed and and even as you have called us out of darkness into marvelous light of your Son, we ask that you would enable us to be a people who live worthy of the calling that you have given to us. God, we don't want to be a church that misses your calling, your direction for us, and so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us. That you would help us to be a people who take seriously the Great Commission. This mission, this task, that you have entrusted to your bride. God, we thank you for the gift of the gospel. We thank you for the good news. And we ask that you would help us to be a people who gladly share that message of the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. We ask that you would bless this time in your word this morning, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray and for the sake of his glory that we ask these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, reaching people with Jesus is our mission statement, and I love that mission statement because every single word in it 
drips with meaning. Reach, of course, is this charge, this mission that Jesus has entrusted to us based in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, right before his ascension. He, he tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. People, of course, is an incredibly important word as well because all people are created in the image of God and as such, all people are of infinite worth to Jesus. Jesus, of course, I, I would think that that's obvious why that matters to us because it's all about Jesus. It all it comes back to Jesus that none of this would be possible without Jesus. He's the, the, the center that holds all of this together. But what about that word with? Well, I think this word with is crucial. That's what I want us to, to take a few moments to look at this morning first as we get started. This word with is crucial because it reminds us that it all starts with Jesus. Everything that we do as a church must start with Jesus. The fuel of the Great Commission, the task that Jesus has entrusted to his church, starts with living out the Great Commandment. To love God and to love others around us. There's this book that I found really helpful. It's called With, of all things. It's by Sky Jatani, and he talks about how it is so important what prepositions we use when we are referring to our relationship with God. And that's very true. When we are talking about our mission statement, it matters that our mission statement says reaching people with Jesus. Because if it was reaching people for Jesus, it would lead us to a completely different place. Not necessarily a bad place, but not the place where God is leading us. This word with matters. I want, us to, I want us to just consider three implications of this word with for our church. The first one is this. The word with reminds us of our communion with Jesus. That we have to be in a relationship with Jesus before we can go on mission. Before we can do anything. The fuel of our mission is to be in relationship with Christ, is to be in communion with him, that you were made for a relationship with God, that you were made for relationship with Jesus, and everything that we do here at Crosswinds centers on that truth. It's the reality of who we are as a church, that you were made for God, and that you will never find rest in this world until you find it in Jesus. And before you try to serve Jesus, you have to recognize that you have to be with Jesus. That's the focus of, of the story of, of Martha and Mary, these two sisters. Martha is all the, always focused on serving Jesus, and Mary just sits at, at Jesus' feet. Before we can serve, we have to be with Jesus. You might be saying, well, how exactly should we be with Jesus? And, and I think Jesus gives us the answer in John chapter 15. John 15, Jesus says that we have to abide in Christ. We have to abide in him. That's the call of John 15. But what exactly does it mean to abide in Jesus? And that's found in two verses here in John chapter 15. Verse 4 and verse 7. That's what I want us to look at here. First, verse 4. Jesus says this, Abide in me, and I also in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So first Jesus says that we can't abide in him 
without also him abiding in us. The two are inseparable. Significantly, the language that Jesus uses here between Jesus and his disciples is very similar to the language that Jesus uses to describe his relationship with his father just a few verses earlier in John chapter 14. He's talking to his disciples about his relationship with his father, and he says, Do you not believe that I am in the father, and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So to abide in Jesus means that we have fellowship with Jesus. It's this full, intimate communion with him. It's to know him, to be known by him. It's to honor him by following his commandments. And it's to be a relationship with him in a way that is similar to his relationship with his Father. So that's what we see in verse 4. But now look at verse 7. In verse 7 we see this, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So notice this parallel here between verse 4 and verse 7. In verse 4 Jesus says, abide in me and I abide in you. And in verse 7 Jesus says, I want to, you need to abide in me and my word will abide in you. And it seems to be that Jesus is indicating that the, the, the key to abiding in him, the key to having fellowship with him in the age of the church, the key to, to being with Jesus, connected to the vine, is the fellowship with him through his word. It's a fellowship with him through his word. If you want to be with Jesus, then, then be in his word. Be in scriptures. There's no greater way to have fellowship with Jesus, to get to know Jesus, than to do it through his word. Before we can be on mission, we have to be with Jesus. We have to abide in Jesus through the words of Scripture. That's why the word of God is, is central to everything that we do here at Crosswinds. When we gather together on Sundays, we do so to sit underneath the word of God. Again, that preposition matters. We sit underneath the word of God because we have the firm conviction that God still speaks to his people. We do the same thing in life groups. If we gather together on Sunday morning to sit underneath the word of God, in our life groups we gather together to gather around the word of God. That's why with here matters. It matters because you were made to be with Jesus. And we enjoy fellowship with him, he reveals himself to us through his word. So that's one reason why with really matters in our mission statement. But that's not all. Another reason, uh, shorter this time, uh, it also, this word with, also reminds us that we are on mission with Jesus. That we are on mission with Jesus. I love the promise that Jesus gives his disciples immediately before his, convert, uh, before his ascension. Immediately after Jesus gives this mission to, to go and make disciples of all nations, he gives them a promise. Matthew 28, Jesus doesn't say, go and make disciples of all nations and good luck. No, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. John 14, verse 18, Jesus tells us that we have not been left as orphans because Jesus is with us. And what an encouragement that is, that while we seek to be obedient to the calling of Jesus, this calling to be on mission, to to be a, a great commission people in our community and to the ends of the earth, it starts with the fact that Jesus is with us. But we have not been left alone. One other implication of this word with, with reminds us that Jesus is our highest good. So when we reach people, we do it with Jesus, we do it because we're in relationship with Jesus, and then the message that we bring to them is Jesus himself, that Jesus is our highest good, that we're confessing alongside the psalmist in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. The message of the gospel is really the message of Jesus coming to save us. Our prepositions matter. And this word with reminds us that it all starts with Jesus that we are united with him through the Holy Spirit, that we are on mission with him, and the message that we proclaim is Jesus himself. So that's the word with and why the word with matters. I want us to to recognize that this word with is the foundation. It's the foundation of our church. But also, We have a mission that has been given to us that we've been entrusted from God with a task as a part of his church, a part of the global church, this great commission to see the gospel spread, to see the kingdom of God spread. Jesus tells us that it's to all peoples and to all nations. So with that in mind, let's look at the action part of our mission statement. Not just with, but now looking at the the implication of this idea of, of reach. What does it mean to reach? We reach. Why are we on mission? It's because of Jesus. It's all about Jesus for us, and that's why we are on mission, that we've been entrusted with this. More specifically, I want you to just consider three reasons from the scriptures of why we are on mission. First and most basically, we are on mission as an act of obedience to Jesus. As an act of obedience to Jesus. If you are Jesus' follower, then you have a part to play in his mission to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission has been given to his disciples, that Jesus gives to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, is for each and every one of us as well. That promise at the end of the the Great Commission, I will be with you always to the end of the age, includes us. That we are a part of this, and Jesus is going to be with us as well. Consider again Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of 
the age. Do you want to be known for obedience or for disobedience? Do you want to hear Jesus, when you stand before the throne, say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or do you want to hear him say, look how much you squandered of what I have entrusted to you? So if for no other reason, we're a people who are on mission because that's what obedience looks like. That we're obedient to our Lord, our Savior, our King. That's not all. We see another reason in the Scriptures and that's that we are on mission because of the heart of Jesus. We're on mission because of the heart of Jesus. This is made abundantly clear in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 is a, a collection of parables. Some refer to them, uh, Luke 15 is the heart of Luke's gospel because they reveal the heart of Jesus for those who are far from him. You're probably familiar with the longest, most familiar of these, the parable of the prodigal son. I like to call it the parable of the two lost sons because I think they're both lost in this story. The other parables at the beginning of Luke chapter 15 are much shorter and they follow the same pattern, a pattern we're going to look at here in a second, and that is what's lost, the search, the, the response after they've been found, and then applying that to our own situation. That's what we're going to look at. Now, if you've been in the church for a while, Jesus' words at the beginning here as he starts this parable probably uh, are, are relatively familiar to you. Notice how Jesus starts in Luke, or Luke rather, starts by setting the, the context in, in chapter 15, verse 1. He reminds us of, of these people who are complaining because Jesus is surrounded by what, we refer, what are referred to as tax collectors and sinners. Verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And if you've been in the church for a while, you know that this term, tax collectors and sinners, it's a relatively blanket term. It's used to refer to this almost universally uh, reviled group of people. But perhaps surprisingly for us, Luke doesn't say that Jesus is seeking these people out. That's true. We know that from other parts of, of Scripture. But here in verse 1, Luke tells us that they are seeking Jesus out. They're drawn to Jesus. And the question, of course, is why? Well, it's because they can tell that Jesus actually cares about them. That Jesus has a message of something that they need. And so they are drawn to Jesus. And that doesn't sit well with the religious people of the day. And so we see in verse 2 their response. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The religious people here are standing in sharp contrast to Jesus and to his heart. Not only do these religious people not care about those who are far from God, they're actually upset that Jesus cares. They're upset that Jesus has this type of heart attitude in a very real sense. The Pharisees, they've been using their religion, they've been using their, their gatherings with other religious people as a way to keep them insulated from those that they consider to be unsavory. And Jesus is tearing down this paradigm. And so they begin to grumble about him. One pastor puts this, this 
problem in perspective. I love the way that he words this. He says, the scandal was that as leaders of Israel, these people were considered under shepherds of the great shepherd, but they were failing in their task, while the under shepherds could not care less. The good shepherd could not care more. So Jesus is he's telling these parables to this crowd, this mixed crowd, of those who are far from him and those who think that they're close to him and that they have the, 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 the market on truth from God and that they are going to protect God from these unsavory people, including if that means deriding Jesus. And so Jesus tells these parables. He tells them really with, with two purposes in mind. The first one, or the first reason, is because he wants people to see the heart of God for those who are far from him. The heart of God for those who are far from him. Jesus is full of love and mercy and patience for those who are far from him. As we're going to soon see, the heart of Jesus is absolutely unbelievable in the lengths that he goes to for the sake of one. Just for one. The heart of Jesus is on display in these Versus it would be impossible for us to overstate Jesus' concern for those who are separated from him. You will never out-compassion Jesus in a concern for those who don't know him. But the second part of this, this chapter is, is a warning. It's a warning because the ending of the parable of the two lost sons makes very clear that you can be religious and just as lost you can use church as a way to protect yourself from God. That's actually what our life groups are going to be looking at this week. We're going to be looking at what are the ways, in, in the parable of the two lost sons, what are the ways that we see in our own hearts that we can use religion, we can use church, we can use gathering together with God's people as a way to keep us away from those who are far from God. And really, the question is, are we using our faith, our gathering together, as a way for us to delude ourselves into thinking that we're not far from God? So those are the two, two parts of, of Luke chapter 15. One, Jesus' heart for those who are far from him, and then also this warning of, it looks, there, there are a lot of different ways that people can be far from Jesus. So how do these two parables, these first two parables, how do they reveal to us the heart of Jesus? Let's take a look at these first two parables and, and consider how they reveal this heart. And we're going to actually look at both at the exact same time because they follow the same form. So the first part is this description of what has been lost in verses 3 and 4 and then also in verse 8. So it says this, so he told them this parable, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, and then we'll continue in a moment, and then verse 8 says this, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, and continues in, in a bit. So the first tells us of this shepherd with a hundred sheep, and he's, he's moderately well off. On paper, the loss of a single sheep, it, it's significant, and yet it's not a terrible loss. If we're just looking at this from a percentage perspective, he has lost 1% of his worth. 
He still has 99% of his value. In contrast, we see this woman, and she only has 10 coins to her name. She's on the verge of poverty here. She only has 10 coins to her name. Each of these coins is only worth about the, the amount of money that you would get paid for working for a day. So she's got basically enough margin to make it through 10 days. And she loses one of her coins, and this is absolutely devastating to this woman. She has lost something that is incredibly valuable to her. Well, how do they respond? Well, that's how Jesus continues. In both parables, the shepherd and the woman begin this search that is so thorough, it is so extreme, that it's almost unbelievable. Luke 15, verse 4. If he has lost one of them, does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And then in verse 8. If she loses one coin, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? This provides a little bit of a, a different picture of, of the heart of Jesus in both of these parables. The, the shepherd still has 99% of his wealth, and so the only reason he is motivated here is for a concern for his sheep, not necessarily for its value. value. He, he actually cares about this sheep. He goes looking for it because he loves it. It matters to him. And perhaps just as importantly, for us to, to grab a hold of, is he knows how helpless it is without him. This is a land of, of, of predators, and this sheep has no chance of survival without its shepherd. And so the shepherd goes on this search, and he's not just going through the motions, but he's traversing the country looking for his helpless sheep. The fact that he leaves all the other sheep in the open country probably implies that he is searching every other place for this sheep. He's looking in the mountains, he's looking in the valleys, he's looking in the crevices, he's looking in the crags, he's looking in these parched and arid lands. He is not stopping his search for anything until he finds his lost sheep. In contrast, we have the woman. And for this woman, this coin is, is so valuable to her that she tears her house apart looking for it. If you were to ask my wife, one of the mo what, what would she think is the most frustrating thing about ma being married to me? She would probably say how often I lose things. And a lot of times, the things that I lose are really not all that significant. They're not all that important. And I'll find them eventually, and if I don't, it's not a big deal. But right after we got married... We were living in this apartment complex, thousands of people, and I lost the key to our apartment. And the more that I looked, the more that I became convinced that I had this, it was a false memory, but I had a, a memory of me putting the key in the door, opening the door, walking into the apartment, and leaving the key in the door. And so the first thing that I do is I go and look at the door, and it's not there, and I'm convinced, convinced that someone saw this as a wonderful opportunity 
to gain free access to our apartment, grabbed the key, pocketed it, took a note, 1044. I think that's our apartment number. I haven't thought of that in years. And was going to come back later at a different time. So we tore the entire apartment apart. Every single piece of furniture was moved. Every single thing was taken out of the cupboards. Crystal went door to door, knocking on our neighbor's apartments, asking if they had seen the key. I went through, piece by piece, through the trash, looking for this key. I found it at the bottom of the trash. Why couldn't it have been at the top? I don't know. Why did I lose it? Why did I throw my key away? I don't know. A month after we got married, in a similar way, freak accident. Crystal is putting lotion on her hands in the bathroom, and as she's doing that, her ring goes flying off into the toilet while the toilet is flushing. I did not realize I could stick my hand so far down a toilet pipe to get that key. The lengths that we will go to for things that are of value to us is unbelievable. And that's what this woman does in this parable. She tears her house apart looking for this one, co- this one coin that in, in the world's eyes may not have been that valuable, but to her it was everything. And she would stop at nothing until she found it. Do you see how these two stories complement one another? The, the parable of the shepherd reveals how much Jesus values, how much he loves those who are far from him. Every single person who is, is created in the image of God, how much he loves them, and he will stop at nothing to find them. The woman, in contrast, also shows us how much worth and value Jesus puts on people. How much people matter to Jesus. No wonder Jesus is oftentimes referred to as the hound of heaven. It's because of his relentless pursuit of those who are far from him. That he will stop at nothing to find those that he loves those who are of infinite value to him. We see that not only in the the lengths that these two characters in these parables go to, but also their response when they find what has been lost. We see that in verses 5 and 6 and then also in 9. The shepherd, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And when she has found it, the woman calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. When the shepherd at long last finds the sheep that he loves, he lovingly carries it, he won't let it out of his sight. He won't let go of it. He puts it on his shoulders. And that's how great his love is for lost sheep. And when he arrives home, his response is virtually identical to the woman 
So great is their joy that they invite all of their friends together, all of their neighbors together to celebrate. We didn't throw a party when I found that lost key. We didn't throw a party when I found or I was able to get Crystal's ring. We were extremely happy. But do you see the, the difference here? So great that we're going to throw a party because the sheep that was lost is back. The coin that I've lost, I found it. And Jesus applies these two short sermons, really, to his listeners. That's what he focuses on in verse 7 and verse 10. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then in verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Over the last few months, I've been able to have a couple conversations with my oldest. He's six about baptism. Um, at our all-church worship gathering, had the opportunity to baptize Todd and Heather. That led to this discussion last month when we baptized Janet. Um, led to this discussion about baptism. We talked about the meaning of baptism, the purpose of baptism. Talked about the fact that um, I, I think baptizing people is, is the best part of my job. Um, I love preaching, but I, but I really, really love baptizing people. And so it's led to these conversations where he's asked if he can get baptized, and, and I've said no, not yet, because I don't think you fully understand and grasp the, the significance of the gospel. But I've also said, Silas, if, if I get to baptize you someday, that will be the happiest day of my life. Happier than when the Royals won the World Series. That was a pretty good day. Happier than when you were born. Happier than when I married your mom. And this is, this is the, closest, the closest I can think of to this application, this, this joy that happens in heaven when one who is lost is found. When one who is far from God repents. When one who is an enemy of God is brought into his family. And that happens for every single person. We are on mission because that is the heart of Jesus. And as his followers, as those who love him, we increasingly love the things that he loves. And if this is what causes him joy, as, as those who love him, we want to, to make him even more joyful. And that really ties into the third reason we are on mission. That's simply this, that we're on mission for the glory of Jesus. We're on mission for the glory of Jesus. That's the more people who come to know Jesus, the more people that extol his excellencies, the more joy 
there is. The motivation for reaching people with Jesus is that Jesus is magnified, Jesus is made much of when people come to faith in him. That's the fuel for being on mission, that Jesus would be glorified. For decades, I have prayed, really since I became a Christian, I have prayed for this Christianese term. I don't know where it came from. It's Christian jargon. I've prayed for a heart for the lost. That I would have this compassion, this, this, this brokenness, for those who are around me, that I would really grasp their desperate need for the gospel, and that would motivate me to evangelism. In essence, what I've been praying is that the heart of Jesus on display in Luke chapter 15 would really be my heart. And as I've been thinking, I, I, I can't conjure up that kind of compassion. I was really, really blessed by these words from John Dawson. He said this, Have you ever wondered what it feels like to have a heart for the lost? Many believers search their hearts in condemnation, looking for the arrival of some feeling of benevolence that will propel them into bold evangelism. It will never happen. It is impossible to love the lost. You can't feel deeply for an abstraction or a concept you will find it impossible to love deeply an unfamiliar person, let alone something as vague as all lost people. Don't wait for a feeling of love in order to share Christ with a stranger. You already love your heavenly Father, and you know that this stranger is created by him but separated from him, so take those first steps in evangelism because you love God. It is not primarily out of compassion for humanity that we share our faith and pray for the lost. It is, first of all, a love for God. Jesus, the suffering Lamb of God, deserves the reward of his suffering. And I think he overstates that case a little bit. But he brings up a really, really, really good point. That we don't have to wait until we have compassion for other people because we already love Jesus. And Jesus is deserving of the reward of all that he has accomplished. What is that reward? Well, the scriptures make it clear, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus deserves the praise of every single person who has ever lived. And if we can play a part in another person who is far from him, it's, it's ultimately up to, to the Holy Spirit's 
working and, and mysterious providence of God. I, I understand that. But if we, can, if we can play a part in pointing people to Jesus so that way there is even more praise for the glory of God, that's worth it to me. We reach. We are on mission for the glory of Jesus. That's really how I want us to end this morning, reminding ourselves that our mission as a church is to pursue the glory of Jesus. We pursue that glory by making much of him in our own lives, by, by living fruitful lives, by, by being with him in, com, in, in communion, and, and also by living out this mission that he has entrusted to his church. In the vision handout in your bulletin, you'll notice that our first point, our elders are praying that we would be a church that is for the one. That essentially, in essence, that we would be a church that, that exemplifies the heart of Jesus in our interactions with all people. That we would relentlessly pursue people so that they would come to know the greatest hope, the greatest treasure, the greatest prize that they could ever find is found in Jesus alone. And I would say it's for Jesus' sake. We must be for the one, for Jesus' sake sake motivated and fueled by the glory of god that jesus is worthy of all praise that we are on mission that jesus entrusted a mission to us for the spread of the gospel the glory of his name and the church has a part to play we must be for the one for jesus's sake this is the message of the entire bible that God is a God in this never-ending pursuit of those who are far from him, and he goes to unbelievable means to bring people into a relationship with him, to rescue people from themselves. And it culminates with Jesus leaving heaven and coming and dying on a cross to reconcile enemies into the family of God. One of the most sobering realities I've, as I've been working on this sermon, is um, there are a lot of examples in the Bible of people who don't get this. That people who have experienced the grace of God and yet stubbornly refuse to join the joy of Jesus in sharing that with others. Just think of the prophet Jonah. Jonah is one of the most complex, perplexing characters in the entire Bible. Jonah, the book of Jonah is essentially this story of God's unrelenting pursuit of those who are far from him and his people who are stubbornly opposed in participating in the mission that God has for his people. So God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim the word of God to proclaim this judgment that is coming on the people of Nineveh because of their evil actions. And rather than going, Jonah goes the other way. He runs away from God. And the bulk of the book of Jonah is really Jonah coming to terms with the fact that he can't outrun God. He can't outrun God's promises and his purposes. But then Jonah eventually turns around and he comes back to Nineveh. And wouldn't you know it, the people of Nineveh, they actually respond to, to the message of, 
of, of repentance and, and God relents of his judgment on him and or on them. And, and just like in, in Luke chapter 15, Jonah joins in the rejoicing of the heavens. No, that's not what happens. When God saw what they had did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's response to the repentance of those who are far from God is it's so extreme, it's almost laughable. And yet it forces us to look at our own hearts because it's a poignant reminder of our own tendencies, if not in our hearts, not in, not, maybe not in our, our words, but maybe in our priorities. Maybe in our actions. We may never say, like Jonah, man, I am so upset that you save people, God. And yet, are we on mission as revealed in our words? in our actions, in our priorities, in our habits. In contrast with Jonah, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, I actually read this this morning in my um, devotions, the story of Naaman and his slave girl in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Syria, and he was a great man with his master and in high favor, but because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. The heart of this little girl is astounding. She's been kidnapped from her home as the spoils of war. She's looking toward a lifelong slavery to this pagan family. In a very real sense, she is, she's being forced to live with her enemies. And her concern is for Naaman's health. Jonah keeps this message of, of the hope to himself. And this girl is willing to, to share it with this person who is her bitter enemy. And through the mystery of God's providence, in 2 Kings chapter 5, we see that it leads to the conversion of one of the highest authorities in, in Syria, the leader of their army. And it all starts with this little girl who is willing to share about the goodness of a God who accepts those who are far from him. As the people of God, who have been entrusted with the great commission, we must be for the one. For Jesus' sake. For the glory of Jesus.
What if the, the highest aim in our lives was Jesus' glory? What if we saw this amazing responsibility that has been entrusted to us, that we, we get to play a part in God's plan. We get to play a part in bringing about Jesus' inheritance the full number of the ransomed and the redeemed from every nation, language, tribe, tongue, and also those who are around us that may not believe yet, but those that God will bring to faith by heart of those who are for the one, for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the incredible gift of salvation. We thank you that you are a God who wasn't stopped by the great chasm between us, but who made a way for us to enter into your presence. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing the dead to life. Help us to be a people who are on mission, fueled by a relationship with you, and motivated by a desire to see you made famous in our community, in the surrounding communities, in our nation, and to the ends of the earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.